Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. My guest today is Tracy Grant. Tracy writes the Rannick Fraser Historical Mystery Series, which is pretty amazing if you haven't read any of it. And I have just a lot of questions for Tracy. First of all, how are you doing? I am doing pretty well. I, I guess I always say to people, I mean, all things considered, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I feel fortunate in a lot of ways, partly because um, in my non-writing life, I work for an opera training program, and I also know a lot of actors, and so they're all unable to practice their art right now. And at least as writers, we can still practice our art and get it out in the world. Yeah. So that, although, I mean, there are issues with distribution and things, but with ebooks, I mean, things can still be, we can still write books and have them pied up book published during, during the pandemic. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that my daughter and I have a big yard to go outside in and I was already used to working from home. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough time, but it's, um, yeah, I feel fortunate compared to a lot of people. Oh yes. I hear you. And you know, uh, has your, is your daughter doing okay with remote schooling and that kind of thing? already did homeschool so that's another thing that's been really great so we were already adjusted to that to working from home and doing school at home and we have a neighbor uh, her best friend is our neighbor who's her age and after a couple of months we kind of went into a social bubble with them so she's had company and she's also learned she can do zoom by herself now she's learned how to do facetime with her friends and then when she wanted to talk to more than one at once she figured out how to well she had me help her do zoom but now she can do it herself so <laughs> i mean it's amazing just it's um it truly is. The kids, they're growing up so differently. I don't know about you, but I really date from the pre-computer age. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So tell her things like I'll say, yeah, we didn't, not only did we not have smartphones when I was little, we didn't have computers. We didn't have email. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's inconceivable now. <laughs> I know, I know. I remember even back in the 90s, a friend's kid saying to me that my old laptop that's a funny computer. It's black and white. And that was when color computers hadn't been around that long, but they couldn't remember computers that weren't in color. And that was, you know, over 20 years ago. I still remember getting my first uh, color display laptop. <laughs> I remember getting my first computer when I was in college and it was a big, yeah, yeah a big thing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, let's get to your books. First of all, um, I was, as I did my little bit of research on you, I had no idea that the first of these, this mystery series came out in like 2009. Is that correct? Well, yes. The first, the first, the first, 2011, um, but no, wait a minute. I'm thinking, yes, 2011. But in 2002, I started I wrote the Fraser books, which the Rannick series is kind of an retelling alternate universe that grew out of the, which is why I call them the Rannick Fraser books. Got it. Got it. And I, um, and I wanted to keep, I wanted to write about the same characters. I actually wanted to write about their earlier adventures at that point. And they wanted different names. So I changed the names of the main characters. And then I got to the point where I wanted to go forward after what I'd done in the Fraser book. So I basically did sort of an alternate reality 
to catch the series is up. So yeah. So okay, so my yeah. So my estimation of how many there are is probably off. How many have you written of these? There, it's a little tricky because there are novellas. I believe with with the novellas, we're at about nineteen. Wow, that's that's really impressive. <laughs> and novellas, not it's not all full novels. Yeah. Yeah, but even so, it's impressive because these are not just tossed off little, you know, historical mysteries with whatever. There's a lot of serious, deep history in there. And the characters are really well developed. And, you know, it, these are, it, you really have to read them to appreciate that about them. So, you know, and I, I started reading the Tavistock plot, which is your most recent one, and I'm still deeply engrossed in it. Um, and, and also these are, I mean, you said you wrote some novellas, but these are also substantial books, the ones that are actually books, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I do, I do a novella, to keep, to, to keep the series going, I do a novella every November, and then I have a novel every May. And um, the novellas are much, are about, you know, 30, 30 to 50,000 words. The, novel, the novels are about 120 to 130. And so the novellas are much... I can write much more quickly, but it lets me keep the series going. And it also lets me sometimes dramatize events and kind of the overall arc of the characters that wouldn't fit in a full novel, but I want to show them. So it's, it's fun for that too. Right. So uh, can you give us me some sort of insight as to how you've managed to keep this series going over such a long time? You mentioned something about changing some things, but you know, is it, is it, do you think it's easier or harder if you had to write all of those as separate books? Would that be harder? Yes, I think so. Um, I think so. I mean, I think there are, there are things that are easier and things that are harder. I mean, for me, when I start writing, I, it takes with new characters, it takes me probably a quarter to a, sometimes even half of the first draft, sometimes even all of the first draft to get, figure out how the characters talk and like have their voices come easily. So with these characters, with Malcolm and Melanie, the central couple and the other ongoing characters, I know when I go in how they talk, how they communicate, I know their history, I don't have to sit down and work out backstory. Now I have to do that for, new, there's new, there are new characters in each book because each book and novella has a separate mystery arc that gets wrapped up as well as ongoing series arcs. So that, that's easier. Certainly, I mean, I really admire historical novelists who change periods from book to book or, you know, between every few books because, you know, sort of trying to, trying to master the detail of one era is enough. And I'm always learning, finding new things that I have to research in each book and learning new things, which is great, which I would be bored if that wasn't true. But I mean, it is easier being in the same world. And then, you know, you have settings that you're coming back to, too. There are new settings that, you know, I know what their house looks like. I know what other, other houses look like. I know I've written scenes. Yeah, so that, that helps. So I think it's, I do think for me, it's easier. And I love, I love knowing my characters and living with them. And, and when I start a new book, it's like settling in with my friends. And that's, I like that feeling. Yeah, I can, I can really understand that because, I mean, my own very small way, I was so excited because I actually wrote the third in a series. I thought, wow, I actually have a series. <laughs> oh, that's, and that's how it starts. And that's, yeah, that's wonderful. And it's so, yeah. And, and it is, you're right. I mean, it's, it's like, I know this character, I get right into her voice and it's, you know, and I understand her background and what's happened with her. But here's the other thing about these. I'm curious, do you have readers who have like read the entire series from beginning to end that you know of? 
I do. I do. I actually have a, there's actually a Goodreads group that a reader started to talk about the books. So there's a Goodreads group of people and it's every so often we'll have a thread because new people join about how people discovered the series. And it's amazing to me. There are people who read the whole thing from the beginning. There are people who've started recently and read all of the books. Some of them have just read the Rannoch books. Some of them have gone back though too and read the Fraser books. Um, so it's, and then there, and it always intrigues me too, the people who started with a book fairly late in the series and liked it and then went back and read the earlier ones versus the people who've read all along. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, for myself, my experience of reading this, um, this, the most recent one is that the way you've threaded in the hints of stuff that happened before makes me say, Oh, I need to go back and see what that was, you know, <laughs> Well, that's good. I mean, that's the idea. That's what you want to do. That's always the challenge in a series. I mean, you want to you want to have enough for new readers to not be totally confused. You don't want to bore the people who know it all. You want to remind the people who haven't read one of the books for like a year what what happened. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's slightly different. It's a, a slightly different or not different, but it it adds a, a layer of craft to the whole thing to have to consider all of that. And, that is, yeah. Yeah, that's maybe where writing a series can get to be more complicated than writing. There are ways it's easier than writing standalones, but I guess trying to keep the series arc going is where it can get more complicated. Yes, absolutely. And it, you know, it really is. I, I don't know, maybe there are, you know, courses or whatever out there or classes that, that talk about writing a series, but I've never bumped into one. And I've kind of just sort of made it up as I went along for my little series. But um yeah. I'm also fascinated by a couple of different things. One is the preponderance of families and children in your <laughs> books. You know, it's a it's a it's a mystery. It's in it's they're they're in the um, Regency period, and right. and there there always seem to be children in the picture, which is really different. I think it it it's yeah it is true. It started with. Um, the series started with the premise for the series originally was a couple who, which actually grew out of a book I co-wrote with my mom that was never published, like when I was still in college, but of a couple who where she's a French spy and he's a British spy and they, and they get married and she's spying during the Napoleonic war. She marries him to spy on him, but then they, then they, then she falls in love with him and where does it go and what happens when he learns the truth. And that's sort of the core piece of the series. And so they all, they had from the beginning, they've had children. Um, so their children have been part of it. And then there are other couples who've either come into the series with children or who've gotten together um, and had children. So now there are, there are a lot of the main characters have children, which I find, I mean, the sort of the challenges of balancing being a parent and having a career, which in these people's cases is, in, is being spies, it's investigating mysteries, it's being in parliament. Uh, a lot of the challenges though are not unlike the challenges that modern parents face so the sort of parallels i think and contrasts are interesting and i like the kind of there's also an, it gives it an edge because they're running a lot of risks and they're in danger but the fact that they have kids sort of heightens the dangers it grounds them it means that when they decide about what risks to run it's not just as simple as oh well i can risk myself it doesn't matter what happens to me i'm willing to take this risk so um yeah yeah it makes it feel like so much more um deep a world as though you're really in the world you're not just engaging with these characters you know right 
I think it ground. Yeah, exactly. I think it gives them, at least to me, it gives them a fuller life, and it gives you a sense that you're in. You're you're coming into this full life as opposed to just into the into a certain adventure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And then the other thing is, there seems to be such a an even balance in agency between, and that's not meant to be a pun, <laughs> agency <laughs> between the men and the women. Right. Well, I mean, I, yes, I mean, I, I like that in, in reality, but also I think that's one of the reasons I liked the whole premise of a couple who were both spies, because then they both equally share that career, at least going into it. And they're both, they're both used to going into danger. And especially once he, get, you know, once they get used to the fact that they're both, they've both been spies, they can share things pretty equally. And I think that's, and yeah, so that's, and then the other women in the series who weren't spies to begin with are mostly married to former spies. So there's, they've kind of been, it appeals to them and they kind of get, they've, they've become more active, I think, as, as the series has gone on, which is fun to write. So, yeah. Um, so how much of that, of the idea of female spies versus male spies is, is based in, in your research and history and how much is just you making it up? Well, I mean, there certainly have been female spies historically throughout. And I, I mean, I don't know of any who married British, any French spies who married British spies. <laughs> I, it, happened, it could have happened and we never learned about it. Um, there certainly, though, were very capable women who did spy and who even ran spy networks. So there, that's been true in, in various historical eras. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, the, rec- the records of, of actual spies from the era are, I mean, it, it's not something that's really recorded largely. So a lot of that is, is sort of, it could have happened, you know, it's, it's this could have happened. Because here's what we know about did ha- what did happen historically and what, what the what could have happened? So, I mean, I've created a character. There wasn't there wasn't an official intelligence service, but I've created a character, Lord Carfax, who's sort of the unofficial head of British intelligence and runs things like a secret network. Um, and then I do have in there's one book that takes place during Waterloo, and there was a man, Kalkohan Grant, who was the head of um, I probably said his name wrong, his first name, but he was the head of military intelligence under Wellington. So, one of my characters, Harry Davenport, works for him at the in in um imperial scandal and that was and he he was a real character the thing i love about historical fiction is a couple things first of all we get to ask what if what if this were the case yeah right right and 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 second of all i always learn something i had absolutely no idea about when i read historical fiction especially in eras that i don't specialize in and I, I don't write I have never written in the Regency era for I have no idea what reason but it's just it has never happened and um, and the stuff about the politics can you talk a little bit more about that the levelers and things right yeah it's a fascinating era to me um, because it's kind of it's on the cusp between the 18th century which was much more body and the Victorian era which was much more restrained at least on the surface officially and it's also you know, it's between industrial, between sort of a much more agricultural world and a much more industrial world, and things are changing. And yet, and there's the there's the romantic era going on. There's the ferment of the French Revolution kind of lingering. But because of that, it's a very um, reactionary time politically in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the people in power, especially once Napoleon's. In fact, that's and that's one reason why a lot of people 
supported Napoleon for all the issues with him was that he was sort of the last remnant of representing the French Revolution and there were and change and um and there were a lot of progressive laws that got rolled back when he fell. So so in Britain you have the Tories basically in power the whole time and you have a lot of people like Castlereagh, the British Foreign Secretary for most of the era, and Metternich in Austria, who are um, who both are in my book Vienna Waltz, um, which is at the Congress of Vienna, who really thought any kind of reform would open the gates to revolution, as opposed to thinking, hey, if we don't want to have a revolution, maybe we better make some reforms <laughs> to stop it from coming. But that wasn't the attitude they had. So, um, so you had, and at the same time, you had sort of you had unrest bubbling up. Especially um, after the after Waterloo in Britain, there was a lot of a lot of soldiers coming back, and there were not there were not good pensions. They didn't people didn't have money. People were people were injured. They couldn't work. You had enclosure happening on a lot of the lands, and um, people losing their blood able to farm anymore. People the start of sort of the beginning of factory life, but it was pretty grim. There weren't a lot of rights for factory workers. There were some bad harvests. There were corn laws that protected the price of wheat, which was great for the aristocrats that owned wheat, but it made bread really, that owned wheat, it made bread very expensive. So um, it, was a, it was a tough time. And there, were, and there were the start of people like the Luddites who were against, you know, thought machines were the problem and, and were against breaking, were, were for breaking, which would, would, would smash machines. And there were protests like Peterloo and then the, sounds kind of modern, the government, government troops ended up firing on protesters and people were shot and killed. <laughs> uh, so I invented a group called the Levelers who are, um, and there was actually, it was a group in the 17th century called the Levelers who were part of the, part of the, yeah, mm. the um, English Civil War. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I, and I, I had studied that in, in college. So I, my, my modern levelers, my modern as in Regency levelers took their name from that group. They're, they're a more educated group of um, some young aristocrats, some artists, some, a lot of people around the theater, which is where the Tavistock plot takes place. And they're, um, they're supporting reform. They're writing things that would be considered because that you, you could get arrested for writing a lot of different things in this era. There was, you know, freedom of speech really didn't exist. So they're writing and they're potentially getting involved in some more violent agitation. It's not, that's one of the issues in the book. And they're connected to the Carbonari in Italy. Because I had done a book called Gilded Deceit in Italy. And there were connections to the Carbonari who were also, who were young radicals who actually were involved in, in violent uprisings in Italy at the time. I picture your brain now with all of these little threads going all over Europe at this time and, and sort of gathering all of this history and synthesizing it into these really exciting mystery stories. It's, it's pretty impressive, I have to say. Um, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get started in writing these? I mean, did, you mentioned uh, co-writing a book with your mother when you were in college. Right. So my, my mom, I always have loved the Regency era. I love Jane Austen. Um, I, my mother read Pride and Prejudice to me when I was seven. I'm reading it to my daughter. My daughter's eight. Um, and then we, she discovered Georgette Hare and then started reading those to me when I think I was 10. And we read those together. And we loved, we both loved the Regency era. And I was, I wrote from when I was very young, I was always writing stories. And I, and I bet my mother was a psychologist. I bet her on a trip when I was 13 that she couldn't write a book because I wanted her to write a book. And she got an idea for a Regency romance. And we ended up worked on it together off and on. And we sold it when I was in 
college. And it was actually published. It was called The Widow's Gambit. And then we did, we did, we did a second book that we weren't able to sell it with a little offbeat. And it, but it had the idea, it, it gave me the idea for Mel Malcolm and Melanie Ramack, basically. But then my mom and I went on and wrote eight books together um, over the next, yeah, from published from 1988 into the, to the, basically, my mom died in 95. So for like seven, seven years we wrote together. And that was great. It was really, um, it was really fun to write with her and very exciting. And, um, and then we had started, we had written one historical romance set in the, actually during the Peninsula War in Spain with our, one of our last books together. And after she died, I wrote three more that were all Regency or just after the, actually they were, or just after the Regency, the last one was 1820s. And, but I loved, I always, we always put a lot of mystery in our books and I put more and more mystery in them and also history and adventure. And I would, my editors would have to remind me it's a romance, put more romance in, you know, need more time with the couple. The plot's too complicated, simplify the plot. Mm. And finally I'm like, okay, this is obviously what I want to write is, is a different kind of book. Maybe I better write it and um, see if I can sell it, which was, <laughs> and so that was when I wrote the book, which was originally published as Daughter of the Game. And then it was reissued as Secrets of a Lady. Um, and that was the first, um, that was the first Fraser book. And at that point they were called uh, Malcolm and Charles and Melanie Fraser. And then when I did the Rannock books, they became Malcolm and Suzanne Rannock, which were their middle names. But then when Melanie's past comes out, it turns out that her real name is Melanie. So she sort of went back, she went back to being Melanie in the series. Okay. So that, that links the names for me. Cause I had, cause then I went back and looked at, at your earlier ones and saw Charles and Melanie. I thought, hmm. but, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. It's a yeah. roundabout way. But what I loved about rebooting the series is part of their backstory was always that they'd been at the Congress of Vienna and then they'd been in Brussels during Waterloo. And so the first three Rannoch books I wrote were the Congress of Vienna and then Brussels during and before and during and after Waterloo. And then one in Paris after, right after Waterloo, where there was a lot going on. And those were really fun settings to write about and explore. Yeah, yeah I, I know. It's, that's the other thing is that, I mean, I have, I have a couple of manuscripts that take place in early New York City, but I keep being drawn back to Europe for my stuff yeah <laughs> yeah i mean love, i know i love britain i was just listening to your interview with christopher gortner and he was talking about his first i think united states set book the one he's doing about jenny Churchill. and i was thinking mm. yeah i i'm not drawn to writing about the united states i mean unless mm. maybe i guess i sent my british characters there for a book but i've not even that isn't even something i thought about doing it's just it's interesting how certain settings draw us and i think that's partly because of the periods we're interested in because right the it, especially early the two europe and the united states were so very different from each other right right and i'm yeah, interested in music and art and things like that which were less well developed in the 18th century in the u.s exactly. yeah no that's true so it's very yes so it's very it's very fun to write about explore i loved vienna because there was so well you've written about vienna earlier yes. but there's so music in Vienna. I mean, it's a true musical city and it's just very, that was so fun to write about. Yeah. Vienna's awesome. And, and, uh, and complicated too, you know, I mean, right. there's, yeah. yeah, the, the terms of their, the Royal family and the Habsburgs and all that kind of stuff. It's, and it's very complicated. It's so funny because, and I, I'm doing this presentation for my book launch about this amazing character 
named Joseph Bologna, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who was, oh, yeah. uh, who was a black violinist in Paris in the 17... He, he came when he was just a boy, and then he stayed until he died. And um, in reading this book that about him, which there's only really one authoritative book, there were all these things that I never knew, even though I know about that history, just having somebody else's view into it. Right, right. Wow, I didn't realize that, you know, there was all this stuff going on in the north of France during the revolution. So, so ha what, have you sort of had any research surprises when you've looked for things? Yes, let me think. I mean, well, one of the things, one of the things in this book is, um, one of the characters turns out to have to be descended from an African, from a from a slave in Barbados, um, which is part of part of the backstory. But he, I mean, he knows this. But and um, and so I, I did. I mean, I knew some, and I had gone to a really great exhibit at the Museum of the City of London years ago about about um, black black British people in this era. But what amazes me researching that is how modern the arguments against slavery sound. I mean, it's the exact same arguments that you'd make today, basically, about the inhumanity of it. It's not, it's not like, oh, they just viewed it differently then. It was different. No one knew it. They didn't, they didn't understand why it was wrong. I mean, it, and, and, and yet the, very strongly the arguments against, the rather obvious arguments against why it's inhumane were being made. And that um, is both heartening because it shows that people had humanity at, you know, in, in, in any era. And it's depressing because the same arguments are, are being played out today. So that's, yeah. 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 And the vibrancy of the, um, the African culture in, in Britain at the time is something you don't, you don't, you know, I don't think we tend to be aware of. We don't, we think of it as a very sort of white looking world and it wasn't. So that's, that's interesting too. I know it's a, it's a similar thing in France, although possibly not as much, but you know, that. European history has basically been whitewashed because exactly. it's been written by white men. It's been whitewashed right. and, and masculinized. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> we also have another connection in that I, I have worked for opera companies and stuff, you know, cool. which is yeah. really, yeah. And, and um, unfortunately the company I worked for is no more. It didn't survive the 2008 recession. Yeah. So, but you have this whole thing is around the theater for you. Do you have any kind of a theater background or is this just? I, I do. I used to, um, I, well, actually, when I was very young, about my daughter's age, I would say I wanted to be an opera singer. Um, my grandmother had sung opera and my great aunt. Um, I do not have a voice. My own daughter, who sings quite well, tells me to be quiet. When she was about a year and a half, she wouldn't let me sing to her. I was doing some vocal warm-ups before I did before this interview today, and she told me to be quiet because <laughs> Oh, kids, um, yeah. So I love opera, but I, I don't have a voice. But then I thought, then I wanted to be an actress, and I did a lot of theater um, through high school and college. I was an apprentice with what's now the California Shakespeare Theater in, um, in the East Bay and the, the, the Bay Area. Um, and I, and then when I was in college and I was studying theater, I, we sold our first book and suddenly I realized that writing was something where you didn't just write the book and it sat somewhere because this was before the days when you could put it up on your website or something, but it actually people were going to read it. And I started thinking about being a writer and my interests kind of moved that way, but I've always loved theater and love, loved opera. So, um, so it was, it's been part of the series 
from the beginning, uh, Malcolm and Melanie's good friend, Simon Tanner, is a playwright and he's the part owner of the theater. And that's been, there's one book, The Barclay Square Affair, that centers around a manuscript, an alternate manuscript of Hamlet, like an alternate version of Hamlet that comes to light that may or may not be authentic. Oh, yes, that was was mentioned in the Tavistock plot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And they're actually putting on a production of this play while meanwhile, it may have been used as a code, the manuscript may have been used as a code book, so there's a whole intrigue going on with it, but there's, there was a, quite a bit about the theater. But then, and then Melanie's backstory is that um, she was the daughter of traveling, her parents had a traveling theater company in Spain, and when she was, her father was French, her mother was Spanish, and her mother was an actress, her father ran this company. And they were, her mother died when she was eight in childbirth, but her father was killed in the Napoleonic, in the Peninsula War, when she, it, they got caught up in an attack in a village, and when she was 15 and she ended up on her own. Um, it was really, her sister was killed. It was really devastating, but she came out of theater. So that was partly why she then ended up becoming a spy. I mean, she has these skills where she can play with different roles. And, but then as I've been developing her, there's been this, there's a thread in the book about women series about women needing roles outside being wives and mothers, although they're, you know, they're very devoted mothers and they love their husbands. Um, and, Melanie's always been a spy, but then she stops being a spy after Waterloo because it's too much. And she's still committed to the things she believes in. She's, but she's working a lot as Malcolm. She's a very accomplished political hostess and a diplomatic hostess, and she's investigating with Malcolm. But really, her, her life's pretty much built around Malcolm. And I kind of I touched off and on, and I actually, looking back, I'm, I'm, I touched on it more than I realized about how it's sort of an issue for her, that she doesn't have anything that's really her own. And um, if you go back to what she might have been if she, her family hadn't been killed and she hadn't been caught up in the war, she probably would have. She was starting to act on stage, so she might have ended up being an actress. And so I got the idea a couple of books ago that, of her becoming a playwright. Mm-hmm. And that was something because, because, you know, with being in British society, her being an actress was probably pushing it a bit. But, the, you know, there were... Um, Car- Lady Carolyn Lamb's brother-in-law was George Lamb was a playwright, and that was not scandalous at all. I mean, there being mm-hmm. a playwright not something that was considered scandalous, and there were certainly women novelists. So, so, um, so I had I I brought up at the end of the book the Glenister Papers that she was writing a play, and um, and then there's my the novella before this. They actually she actually appears in sort of a charity holiday pantomime, and that's what that it said around that. And then I was setting up that she was in Gap. Yeah. That her play was going to start being produced, and um, and then and then I already had the Leveler group being centered around the theater. So those two and 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 were it was it's early 1820. There's a lot of unrest going on. It's right before George III dies. So bringing together the theater and the political unrest seemed like a good combination for this book. Yeah, I mean I love it. All these dimensions and everything. Now I have a more practical question, which is. Do you know who done it when you start writing your mysteries? Sometimes. I used to write, I've actually, my mom and I plotted a lot because there were two of us and we wrote alternate things. And I, I plot quite a bit, but I, I start, I plot on index cards and I now write, I don't know if you write using Scrivener, but I use Scrivener. Yes, yes. Yes, yes I love Scrivener. Scrivener is amazing. <laughs> it's, it's so much easier. So I use the, the corkboard in Scrivener and I lay out my scenes on index cards and what I'll do now is I'll usually start writing. I'm actually starting, I'm finishing up the novella that'll be out this November. It's about to go to the copy editor, hopefully today. But I'm starting the next book that'll be out next May. And, um, and what I'll do 
as I, as I lay out the index cards and I'm working up the plot, I'll have certain scenes I know are going to happen and I'll start drafting those. So I will write parts of it before I know the whole plot sometimes. Um, and then I can go back and weave them together, which I actually find that way I spend a lot less time on transitions, which I can get really hung up on. Um, so I don't necessarily know who did it when I begin. I sometimes do, but I don't all. Um, I didn't in the Tavistock plot till I was into, a, I don't remember how far I was, but I was away. It was pretty obvious to me when I decided what, what it was fairly obvious, but um, I was a ways into the first draft before I was sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, the people are so different. Writers are so different about this kind of thing, about wanting to just start writing and see where it goes. And so I, yeah. I guess I'm kind of in the middle too. I have to have, I kind of have to have a vision of what the ending should be like, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. <laughs> right, exactly. And, I, and I've sometimes known, I actually have, I'm writing now in the new book, some scenes, because there are, there's sort of, in each book, there's both sort of the overarching series architecture that's that's developing and then there's the mystery of that book and i actually even have a scrivener file for the series architecture where i just have like index cards for things i know are going to happen at some point i'm not even sure in which book yet and i'm not necessarily sure in which order they're going to happen so there are some scenes like that that i've been working on in the new book because i know those are going to happen regardless of the sort of interwoven with the mystery of the book but but it's sort of but separate from it too in a way supposedly my series with my young adult series is a mystery series but yeah. it's but it's you know it's funny because i think of it more as her as her character arc than the actual mystery under underlying it right know? yeah well i yeah i that's that's the fun thing though i think about a series is i mean i love mysteries i love trying to i love trying to guess what's happened you know who did it mm -hmm. when i'm reading it but I, but I really love in a series following the characters and watching them grow. And that's like, that's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Although I have to say, I'm not really regretting, but th this is a young adult series. And Teresa is an, at the upper limit of the age of a young adult heroine. Oh, so oh. I think I'm going to have to move it into the adult realm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the next one. Lead us and then grow with it. I mean, you know, yeah. but the start it will then become, yeah, they'll like that because then they won't, they'll but like reading about someone. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have now back to something else I've thought about, but it, it, you have all these wonderful children, these families in here. Have you ever thought of writing like a middle grade book that involves the kids side of, of things? Oh, that's a really interesting idea. You know, I've thought about, and I've even thought, because my daughter's writing a little bit now, so I've thought about us writing something together, but that's a really interesting idea to actually link, write about. I have thought about writing about the kids when they're older. They, they'd be about the right age for, say, Colin, Mal Malcolm and Melanie's son to be in Paris in 1832 um, in the Les Miserables era. And so I've thought about that, but, um, but writing about the kids as in like a middle grade option, that's a really interesting idea. And that kind of makes sense because readers of the series have kids and grandkids and they might. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, what made me think of it partly was that the, what their son is like trying to get involved with the right. investigation. Exactly. Right, yeah, that's, that's one fun thing in Tavistock plot is the kids are getting old enough now but, that some of them, yeah, but they actually, and they actually do, he does do a little bit. So it's, yeah, that, that could definitely be something that yeah. grows. Yeah, I could just see that because I have with Teresa, I have she has a, 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 a younger sister who's 15 years younger than she is. And so yeah. I've, I've been sort of thinking, hmm, maybe there's a middle grade 
book in there. No. And I love, that's a great idea. I love the idea of, of the connection. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought it's doing more in the, in the, in the main series as they get older, you know, even as young children, but, but I hadn't thought about a separate book that was geared to middle grade readers. And I love that idea. That's um, anytime you can pay me after this is done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Um, so is there anything that you want to say to the, that I haven't thought of asking you in this uh, interview? Really, really been fun. Um, no, I'm working on the, ne so the next, the next novella and novel, it's not really a spoiler because this is actual history, deal with in, um, so um, Tavistock plot is in January, early January of, of 1820. And George III died at the end of January. I think it was the 29th. He's very, almost very end of. And um, his son had been regent, which is why it's called the Regency. Um, and then, um, and then his son, the Prince Regent, became George IV. And he had been married to a to a princess named Caroline about 25 years before, and it was a disastrous marriage. I mean, they he was he was in love and had secretly married this woman Maria Fitzherbert, but it wasn't a legal marriage because she was Catholic and she was divorced, and uh, oh, which was Catholic, and he didn't have permission, and there were all these all these issues. And so, um, so in fact, he and Caroline had one child, Princess Charlotte, and if you look at the date, she's born almost exactly nine months from the wedding. So I almost wonder if they only slept together once. <laughs> slept together, I don't know. But in any case, um, the marriage fell apart. They basically lived separately. Princess Charlotte died in childbirth in 1817, which was really sad. Um, and um, Caroline had ended up in Italy and um, with a man who was almost certainly her lover. And when George became king, he wanted to divorce her. And he, it had to go through the House of Lords. So, and the Tories supported him. I mean, he, he, had, he, had, liked the, he had hung out with the Whigs when he was younger, but when he became regent, he, he, he supported the Tory government. The Whigs, especially the more radical Whigs, which Malcolm is one of, um, supported the queen because they thought um, if, you know, if the king lost, it might shift, he might get mad at the Tories, it might shift the balance of power in parliament. And, and so in fact, um, her, her main defense lawyer was a man named Henry Gruham, who's a radical politician, who's actually briefly mentioned in, in Tavistock plot. So anyway, the next, in, in June, she returned from Italy. And then in the fall, there was this trial in parliament in the House of Lords. And I mean, there was evidence about bed sheets and who was seen doing what with whom and all sorts of things because they were trying to prove that, you know, she'd been unfaithful. And um, there was just, it was, it was a circus. So, um, so my novella, my next novella, which is called the Cabestac, the, the Carfax Intrigue, which is set in June of 1820, and then my, it uh, deals with sort of just the time when she, this is all just starting to happen, and she's just returned. And then my next novel is set in the fall around the trial, and I'm excited about that. That so. does sound great. Yeah, yeah. So do you ever worry you're going to run out of material? <laughs> No, I mean, I don't. I mean, because I, I love the characters. They have lots of secrets. There are lots of things I still want to have happen. And I think because I have an ensemble cast at this point, different books can focus on different characters. And I have, I've sort of been careful that there are even some re relatives and people who've been mentioned who've never really appeared in the series who could pop in and, and have, and I can play around with their stories and what kind of problems they have. 
Um, and sort of, I think Malcolm and Melanie have a lot of ongoing issues and then, the, mm -hmm. and then the air stays interesting. So no, I don't, I don't, that's not something I worry about actually. Um, yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, I don't want to keep you much longer. This has been absolutely so much fun. I've loved talking to you. Are you in California? I am. I'm in the San, I'm um, in Marin County near San Francisco, over the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. Yeah. Have you have you had been affected by the wildfires? Yeah. I mean, not. We haven't been at any risk, but there was one fire in Point Reyes, which is on the coast. Um, we're a, um, so yeah, and that was we had a lot of smoke from that going back to mm. the middle of August. And the last week when we you probably saw the pictures. You know, when the sky. I woke up one morning and I was like it looks like it's dark, but it says it's nine o'clock. What's going on? And we had, the sky was orange and, uh, and it never, it was like sort of, you know, the far North of Scotland or Scandinavia in winter when it never really gets to be daylight. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then we had very heavy smoke, actually not so much that day as later it got, it got heavier. We had um, through, through not the, through last weekend we had, and uh, until um, Wednesday of this week, we had really bad air quality. So that's been, I mean, it's yeah. worse than Oregon. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have a brother who lives in a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. but he said yeah. it was getting better for him too recently. But um, yeah, I think yeah, and it's funny because someone else I know who lives in Santa Barbara, I think, she yeah. said that she woke up and she said it looked like the sky had been erased. It oh. wasn't like a cloud cover. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's a great thing. It. Yeah, we, we, we've had ash, you know, ash falling from the sky. Like there was, a, we have a, there was ash on top of our swimming pool and on a, a pool toy my daughter has. She was like, it's dusty. I'm like, no, that's ash, honey. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I thank hope you enjoyed having you. Really, oh, I had a great time. It's really fun. Thank you so much. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time. <laughs>